0: Good Hello, I'm Keith Brown, and welcome to the We Are Here podcast. In a few minutes, we're going to listen to a conversation I had recently with Bill Ayers, former founding member of the 70s radical group Weather Underground and author of the new book, Demand the Impossible, a radical manifesto. He's my first guest on this first show, and he's really been a hell of a guy uh, over the Uh, I don't know, about two months we've been trying to put this together. Uh, He has some really good things to say, so please do stick around for that if you can. I should probably tell you now um, what you've gotten yourself into. Uh, The We Are Here podcast aims to be a bullhorn for radical thought. I'm going to talk to progressives, socialists, communists, anarchists, pinkos, freaks, weirdos, malcontents, 'er ne'er-do-wells, Uh, whatever you want to call them, we're going to hear all of the uh, forgotten voices, all the marginalized, stigmatized, ridiculed political thoughts that have fallen out of a mainstream political discourse that has moved so far to the right that a very orange, very unstable egomaniac with overtly fascist leanings is thought of as conservative and a saber-rattling Wall Street shill astonishingly led the one-time party of the working class. See, The thing is, not long ago, hundreds of thousands of Americans were supporters of a reasonably vibrant socialist party. No shit. Actual socialists. You can thank these people for the uh, little things like the eight-hour day, the weekend, and laws that keep your four-year-old from running heavy machinery for 13 hours a day in a windowless factory. Um, That's probably a story for another time. There are also um, unrepentant communists in this country until another deeply embittered man with fascist leanings rose to prominence and uh, ruined their lives and drove them underground. Um, My point here is there used to be actual political discussion in this country that included a plethora of opinion. You didn't just hear from those who support Anne Rand's ideology and those who think that she might just be a skosh too liberal. Um, So we're going to bring in the socialists, the communists, the window breakers, the angry, the aggrieved. We're going to talk about the basic structure of government, the organization of our society. We're going to invite everybody in and we're going to take a look at how we just might make things better for us and for our kids. And so really, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do here. To my mind, you can pick up the newspaper every day and find plenty of Republican versus Democrat false equivalency in the New York Times you can turn in the radio and hear plenty of right-wing hate speech Um, there is enough insipid, context-free political play-by-play on the 24-hour television news theater but honestly there is so much more out there there's honest, sincere opinion from people who come to problems with far different solutions than many people have ever heard there are other ways of thinking about today's problems. There are other solutions that other people have come up with. They may be radical. They may be weird. Some of these ideas, may be, maybe they work. Maybe they don't. But if we don't talk about them, we're never going to get anywhere. There, my, my, my point, again, there's more out there. You just never, ever get to hear it. And that's why we are here. The name of the show clearly comes from the Dr. Seuss book, Horton Hears a Who, that uh, was written in 1954. It was one of Seuss's more overtly political books, and if you go back and read it, and I recommend you do, you're going to find this passage.
1: This, cried the mayor, is your town's darkest hour, the time for all Whos who have blood that is red to come to the aid of their country, he said. We've got to make noises in greater amounts. So open your mouth, lad, for every voice counts.
0: It's cute, right? Yeah, see, the thing is, every voice does count. Because in a very short period of time, the man with the temperament and the cuddliness of a cornered badger is going to have the launch codes for our country's nuclear arsenal. This guy has loaded up his cabinet picks with billionaires, who don't care about you and are uniquely qualified to dismantle the departments that they're in charge of. The Congress is full up with Republicans just wetting themselves over their unbelievably good fortune. And together they are ready to implement an agenda unlike anything that we have ever seen. And it scares the living crap out of me. It probably should scare you too. I hope it does. Um, There is no area of American life that is going to be unaffected. I think that this is our darkest hour. And I believe everybody's got to do something. Nobody can sit on the sidelines anymore. We have to do something. This podcast is, is my something. This is what I can do. This is my contribution. Figure out what you can do. Honestly, we've all got to do something. Because every voice does count. And I'll be right back with Bill Ayers.
1: The loudspeaker spoke up and said
0: Christianity 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 is stupid. Christianity is stupid. Christianity is stupid. Christianity is stupid.
1: Christianity is stupid.
0: Is stupid. So all right, in the in the new book, Demand the Impossible Radical Manifesto, you explicitly used the word manifesto. And I'm assuming that wasn't uh, that wasn't accidental. Why did you use that word?
1: I thought you know, I thought what I was writing, I mean when I sat down to write the book, I decided that I wanted to write a book about um what we're fighting for. You know, people who are progressive, people on the left, radicals rebels uh, revolutionaries we know what we're against and we're pretty good at naming the problems but i wanted to also think about what we're fighting for and why we're fighting for that and so i i decided that i wanted to put it in a very straightforward form and i thought the idea of a manifesto was a good idea in part because a manifesto is where you outline what you're struggling for and you pin it to the door of power, you know, you you put in a nail and you hammer it into the oak door. So that was my thought, that it's simple, it's straightforward, it's brief. I set out to write it as a pamphlet. It became a book just because I'm wordy, but um, it's not that wordy, actually, in the end. But I really did set out to write, you know, a 30-page pamphlet, and it kind of inflated itself into a book, but as you say, it's a fairly fast-moving book, and it attempts to say, this is what we want. One of the ways I think about it um, is, is that, you know, we we I see this bumper sticker around Chicago, and it says, if you're not pissed off, you're not paying attention. And I agree with that. But I also would like to add a bumper sticker that says, if you're only pissed off, you're not going to get to where you want to go. And so I wanted to kind of infuse this thing with a vision, um, with a spirit of love and generosity, as well as being pissed and, and to kind of lay out a framework for what we want. And that's where the manifesto comes from.
0: Gotcha. Okay, that makes perfect sense. You know, this is also not the first manifesto you've penned either, right?
1: Um, well, I, I, when I was underground, certainly we we uh, issued a statement called Prairie Fire, which was right. a kind of manifesto. And when I was in Students for a Democratic Society, we had the Port Huron Statement, which was a kind of manifesto. And both of those were very straightforward, easy to understand and an attempt to articulate a vision.
0: It it occurs to me that these that, that those two that those two manifestos are not um, not all that dissimilar in content, but um, the tone is uh is vastly different. Can you compare the two of those?
1: You're thinking of the Prairie Fire and the Yeah that's right. Well Prairie Fire was written in the early seventies when the war in Vietnam was raging and We were underground and we were um, in a kind of direct and serious conflict with the state around both the issue of the war and the issue of white supremacy and and, uh, the the kind of repression of the Black Freedom Movement. So we were, you know, in a a more of a fighting crouch, I suppose. Um, But I don't think they are really that different. I think that while I believe over, you know, 50 years of being an activist and, and an organizer, I think I've changed and I think the world has changed, but I also think my core values um, are pretty much the same. I, I think that we need a future of joy and justice, of peace, of uh, freedom, and of uh, an economy that's based on sharing, not on predatory accumulation. So so that's pretty much consistent. But yeah, the tone has probably changed a bit. I'm now 72 years old, so I suppose you know things change but but my basic commitments and my basic ideas of what we need to do are pretty similar.
0: Yeah, I, I, I did, that's why I had brought that up because the, the 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 two works actually seem to argue for many many if not all of the same points, but uh if you're to read Prairie Fire if you can find it if you can find a copy of it which I had um the uh the tone of that missive is is a is a whole lot uh, a a little more angry um probably represents a little more uh fire of youth than you uh than the the new book which is a lot more yeah it's which is a lot lighter and a little more positive like you had said and i i I guess that was that was kind of the point right I,
1: i i think that's possible and as i say i think for most people our lives are a combination of change and consistency and so you know i I hope that every year, every day, I change and grow and develop, but I also hope that I don't lose track of um, what powers me forward, and that is a vision of a society that's fair for all, a society that's inclusive, a society that rejects white supremacy and war as solutions to our problems Mm -hmm. and moves in the direction of cooperation and, and peace. So those things are consistent, but I think you're right. When I was underground, and I was, you know, I went underground when I was about twenty-four years old, I think, um, and I was underground for eleven years, and so the the posture and the stance was certainly different, but the aspirations, I think, are very similar. Right.
0: I, I suppose for some of the people who who may be picking this up and listening to it, I probably should explain. Uh, you were with a group called the Weather Underground, correct?
1: That's right, and. Nineteen seventy, and we surfaced in nineteen
0: eighty-one. Do you think um, that today uh, y- you and the underground would have been would have been labeled domestic terrorists?
1: We were, uh, in fact, we were labeled domestic terrorists. Oh, were you? I didn't. I didn't know that. Terrorists. We even had
0: the language then.
1: Yeah, they had the language, and um, and our view of that then and now is that actually we were. Part of the mass movement that was resisting a terrorist war against an entire population in vietnam and that the terrorists were our own government if by terrorism you mean um violent attacks on random violent attacks on populations in order to sway political opinion we were not terrorists we never attacked people um number one number two um uh, you know what what they were calling terrorism and violence was actually a kind of um, amped up, ramped up uh, kind of vandalism where we destroyed property to issue a screaming response to a genocidal war. And so the terrorists and the people who actually carried out the terror um, were the the U.S. government. And even, you know, service people were thrust into the position where they were part of the machine. I mean, John Kerry, our current Secretary of State, Couldn't have been clearer when he returned from Vietnam and testified in front of the Senate and said we commit war crimes in Vietnam every day, not as a matter of choice, but as a matter of policy. He was describing a terrorist war, a war where someone like John McCain could drop bombs on a city, and if he had extra ordnance, there was an entire swath of Vietnam that was considered a free fire zone, and he would go drop his ordnance on those populations. So that's terrorism. That's war crimes. Um, it's never been called uh, the U.S. governments have been called the task for that because they're too powerful. But that's one of the reasons they won't join the U.S. I mean the UN um, uh, International Criminal Court because they know that that would hold them accountable for all kinds of things that they've done and continue to do.
0: Uh, let's bring this back up. Uh... A couple of decades, and talk about this this book of yours. Now, in the in in demand, the impossible. You call for the abolition of the prison system, a uh, radical transformation of our ed- education system, free healthcare for all, taxing the rich to levels not seen since, I'm guessing, the Eisenhower administration, and, and among a half dozen other things. Um, before we get into the meat of you know a few of these arguments, uh, tell me, aren't you talking like a crazy person? I mean, we just elected Trump for fuck's sake.
1: <laughs> no, I don't think so. In fact, what I argue in the beginning of the book is that um, without expanding our radical imaginations, without thinking beyond the kind of uh, debates and and frameworks that were given, we end up kind of spinning our wheels on the unacceptable. Um, in other words, for example, um, uh, we could easily. Um, in this country we could easily have universal health care for everyone it's not out of reach it's not crazy uh every other industrial country has that has some form of it we could do it too but we choose not to and we choose instead to spend our our resources as a nation on war and surveillance and incarceration and things like that so it's a yeah, matter let me, of let
0: me, bill let me stop you right there for a second you see, who is um who is we who are you defining? Oh, who are you defining as we? We could have this. I understand. I, I get it, but I, I'd like I'd like you to expand on who who you're talking about when you're talking about we. Are those? Is that um, our elected representatives? Is that we as we as at the government, or is that we as the people?
1: Well, I think that I think when I when I said we choose to spend our resources, I'm referring to the government and the political class and the one percent. I'm not referring to we the people, but right. but we the people, I think, in general, and this is another interesting point about whether I'm talking like a crazy person, in the issues that you just named, for example, ending mass incarceration, um, uh, universal health care, a decent neighborhood school in every community, these are not radical, crazy propositions. These are actually majority positions. And I know I've often felt, in fact, my whole adult life, I have felt not like a, a barricaded tiny minority with some precious or idiotic view, but I've felt like I'm in the mainstream. And so if you take any one of the issues, gun control, decent schools for all, um, universal health uh, actually people agree with that. That's a majority opinion. When you talk about we, the people, we, the government is much harder to move. There's so many issues that I could point to, uh, where this is true. Um, but But certainly, people, when given the choice, do not actually want their resources spent on militarization and uh, and and kind of global policing around the world. They would rather spend money on schools. It's a matter of you know of uh, organizing to make the kinds of demands that need to be made. Like going back to the question of whether it's insane and crazy, I want to point out that every demand in the history of our country, um, that's been, you know, that's moved us forward as a country has been crazy at one point. And that includes the American Revolution. It certainly includes abolition, which was a crazy position, a marginal position, right up until the 1860s. And it only became a majoritarian position in, in the middle of the Civil War. So, mm. you know, it's not, it's not so crazy to say we need to stand outside of the kinds of choices were given, and say what would make a more just, a more fair, a more peaceful, a more loving world, and then try to articulate that and organize around it.
0: Getting more into, like, let's just take health care for for instance. Um, the 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 idea The idea was bantered around for uh, uh, expanding uh, Medicare for all. Um, for about, I think maybe twenty minutes before we had the Affordable Care Act and that awful fight that was just just to, just barely to get that. Um, why do you think that was never really given too much of a chance?
1: Well, I think there are a lot of reasons. I mean, I mean, I think most people would have approved of it, but but I but I think that the reason it was difficult to organize around is because there wasn't a popular movement demanding it. There weren't, you know, bodies in the street and there there wasn't a a movement, you know, pushing for it. And that means that we were relying on the good intentions of, you know, uh, of politicians. And that's not that that's no way to bring about positive change. They're not they're not going to do it. So what you had is the health industry, the compromising politicians, the um, the big money all backing, um, you know, a, a, a system that would bring about some reform, but would basically line the pockets of the health insurance industry. That's why we didn't win universal health care. It's not because people didn't want it. If asked, people do want it and they want it very seriously and very, um, consistently. So the problem wasn't, you know, wasn't that, um, that people don't want it. The problem was we didn't have a social movement that would demand it. And I point to a social movement because, again, looking historically, every time we make progress, it's because of fire from below. It's not because of the good intentions of those in power. And I can give you many examples, but certainly the abolitionist movement was, if you read Lincoln's first inaugural address, it's a, it's a law and order speech. And then you read his second inaugural address after John Brown, after the beginning of the Civil War, and you have an abolitionist. But that wasn't because of his own brilliance and good intentions. He was a very effective politician, but he was responding to fire from below. Then Johnson passed the most far-reaching civil rights legislation since Reconstruction, but it didn't come out of his own head. It came from fire from below. So my argument in this book, and to young people all the time, is that we spend too much time looking at the, at the sites of power, like the White House and the medieval auction block we call the Congress, that we have no access to, and too little time looking at the sites of power we have absolute access to, like the neighborhood, the community, and the workplace. These are the sites that we ought to be organizing.
0: No, wasn't some of some of what uh, I mean, even just sticking specifically to to to, to universal health care, um, there was there did not not at the right time, but there had been there subsequently was a, a, a fairly large movement of uh, largely young people who backed uh, Bernie Sanders, who um, had spoken quite eloquently about the, the, the about universal health care and. That galvanized a whole lot of young people, and still that wasn't effective.
1: Well, that was That's because universal health care wasn't on, you know, on offer at that point.
0: No, but I'm saying I'm saying subsequent subsequently, uh, you know, a, a man like Bernie Sanders comes along and he he starts galvanizing a whole bunch of young people around at least progressive ideas. Um, I don't know that I would does it. I I don't know that I would call them socialist, but. Um, uh, at least progressive ideas such as universal health care and that did galvanize a whole lot of people and and, and it, um, it it appears to have frightened some of those some of those at the top of the Democratic Party and I don't you know I mean there's some evidence to suggest that uh, he was maybe treated unfairly um, that aside um, do you see that do you see this the at the, least Minor success that he had galvanizing people as um, evidence that, uh, that 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 progressive ideas are indeed you know a part of the majority opinion.
1: Absolutely, I I think that I I admire what he did very much. I think it was um, it, it was a phenomenal accomplishment given everything that he was able to um, uh, get as much support as he as he did without any kind of support from the establishment or. Uh, from the media. Um, but but I think that he, he, you know, the the one problem I have, or the one, I think he was a an, uh, person and he put forward an honest agenda. And the agenda was, um, you know, a kind of Franklin Roosevelt uh, New Deal. Sure, yeah. And and it was progressive. Um, it was limited, but it was progressive. Um, the, the only problem I have with the Bernie Sanders campaign and again with the Jill Stein campaign and others is that they still buy into this idea that the way we bring about change is by electing the right person, but that's not true. And it's actually uh, in many ways um, a waste of money and effort. Um, Not that we shouldn't participate in the political process, but participating in kind of real politics like that without uh, a social movement on the ground in the streets um, is is hopeless in the end. And so all the energy that went into uh, the Sanders campaign, I hope that it galvanizes into a serious and, and realistic rebellious opposition uh, to the new administration. But I have my doubts. I think that we need other things um, uh, to mobilize people and and so okay.
0: like what what do you what do you think what do you think you need
1: well, for example, we need a revitalized um, labor movement and we need people organizing in um, uh, you know in in the workplace. We also need i think right now a sanctuary movement that goes way beyond the idea of a defensive uh, uh, protection of um of folks who are likely to be targeted by the federal government, I think we need to rethink sanctuary as a pl- time for us to gather in neighborhoods and in workplaces, in schools, in classrooms, in houses of worship, and make plans for how we're going to respond to the shredding of civil rights, to the um, attacks on, on on the press, uh, to the attacks on vulnerable populations, like a Muslim registry or like a um, an immigration task force that's going to um, come and snatch people and send them out of the country. I think we have to be mobilized for that. And I think that means much more than participating in an electoral campaign. It means organizing door to um, door uh, person to person and figuring out what we're going to do in this historic moment to resist what is an explicitly fascist movement coming into, uh, into power. Now yeah. I'm not saying. Let me be clear. I'm not at all saying that everyone who voted for Trump was voting for fascism, but it's absolutely clear to me that he ran as a on a fascist program. What do I mean by that? To not you know get too excited with the the rhetoric. What I mean is that the the kind of entangling of business and um, and government uh, is at a, at the highest level we've ever seen it. The kind of Permanent war and militarization and kind of heroizing of militarism, the scapegoating of vulnerable populations, disdain for science, intellectual life, and the arts. These are all characteristics of a fascist movement, and he ran explicitly on that. Um, That doesn't mean that he can enact it all. It doesn't mean that everyone who supported him uh, was part of that, but that's what exists. In fact, when we thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, many of us felt... Well, the problem is that Trump has empowered and cohered a movement of white supremacists that's going to be with us for a long time. And so we were aware of it, even though I don't think most people really predicted that that Trump could pull this off, but he did. And now we're in a very different situation. So I think we have to organize a, a social movement, like in the spirit of the civil rights movement, in the spirit of the great peace movements of the past.
0: That's you know I was going to get into the election a little bit later, but this you know you you brought it up and it just really, it clearly is the uh, the giant orange elephant in the room. Um, do you think do you think that this is this is a and the election of uh, Donald Trump is a Opportunity for progressives to finally have something to rally against since that's what, uh, you know, as you, as you had uh, articulated earlier in the interview that, uh, progressives have a way of, uh, identifying what they don't like rather than what they do like, um, or at least a proclivity to it. And do you think that this, this administration is, uh, is that, um, is that spark?
1: Well, I, you know, I wouldn't wish it on any of us and you know, I would say this that that we don't get to choose our historical moment. none of us does. We don't get to choose when to be born or where or how we get thrust into the world. But we have an absolute responsibility to choose how we're going to respond once we're thrust into that world. So I would never have hoped or imagined that we would have to be organizing on this ground. I would have hoped and imagined that we'd be organizing a peace movement against President Hillary Clinton, but okay, here we are. We have no choice. So we have to see it as an opportunity, even though I don't want to cast it as something that, you know, I'm not rubbing my hands together in glee saying, oh boy, we have an opportunity. There's always an opportunity and it's a matter of how we define it, organize around it, mobilize people to understand it, how we frame it. And that's in many ways what the book is trying to do.
0: What is so wrong with having a decent neighborhood school in every in in every neighborhood, and why can't we have that?
1: We should have it, and the reason we don't have it is because there's been a concerted bipartisan effort for the last four decades to undo public education. Now many of the people who participated in that for the last you know many many years would not have thought of it that way, but I think today, looking back over over The bipartisan efforts from administration after administration, secretary of education after secretary of education, the the political class and the major media and the foundations and the one percent have all bought the idea that education is a product to be sold at the marketplace rather than a universal human right. Mm -hmm. So, for human universal human right, then as a a decent forward-looking. Uh, fully resourced public school in every community would be common sense. But because we've cast it as a product, now we're in a situation where, when I say we, I mean the corporate school reformers, we're in a situation where public education is in the balance. I mean, it's something that's being undone. And the Trump administration, with uh, if Secretary uh, DeVos is confirmed as Secretary of Education, I think we're in very serious trouble because she explicitly for 20 years has been fighting against public schools and for a voucher program that would take taxpayer money and give it to religious and private schools. That is a catastrophe for any notion of fairness in terms of um, in terms of kids having access to a decent education. But I have to say, as a bipartisan, I mean, one of the problems we have here in Chicago is that The secretary of education for seven years was arnie duncan before that he was superintendent of chicago schools Mm -hmm. for seven years so for 14 years he's been telling us how to make good schools he moves back to chicago he can't find a single public school for his kids so he sends them to the elite private school that he went to now i'm not against him sending his kids to that school what i'm against is him not seeing that as a standard for all kids in other words if his kids get to go to a school that has low class size of phenomenally less um, standardized testing as part of the curriculum, a unionized and well-respected teacher core, a curriculum based in part on kids pursuing their own interests, if his kids get to go to that school, why is not the, that not the standard that we as citizens of a democracy want for all of our children? Seems to me that that.
0: Well, I, I think it I think it is the standard that we all want for our children. I don't think anybody's going to argue that they don't want their children into, you know, a terrific school with small class sizes, committed teachers who get paid a decent living salary and, uh, you know, a, a free-form exchange of ideas. I don't think anybody's going to say that they don't want that.
1: ...program, uh, you know, uh, and, and five libraries. I mean, these are things that Chicago public school kids don't have. And these are the kinds of things we ought to be fighting for.
0: Why is it? Do you think it's just because of the the commodification of education? Is that is is that it? Because it's seen as a product and not a, an, a not a right.
1: Yes, I think that's a big part of it. And I also think that the kind of uh, that every school system in the world and throughout history reflects the society that it exists in. And therefore, if we go to South Africa, the old apartheid South Africa had beautiful state of the art schools for the white kids and massive failing schools with 50 kids in a classroom for the black kids that reflected apartheid you could look at those schools and know what apartheid was or you could know what apartheid is and and predict what the schools would look like well we may not want to face it but it's the truth that these schools that we have in this country reflect the reality of our society that means they are segregated racially which was a huge part of the fight 50 years ago, was to integrate the schools. Schools have resegregated at a massive rate. And so we have in Chicago, black schools, brown schools, white schools. That's the way it is. And that's a reflection of segregation in society. We also have succeeding schools and failing schools, which is a reflection of what our society values and cares about. So why we don't have it is because, why we don't have a decent school in every uh, community is precisely because we are not an um, equal and fair and democratic society yet, but that's what we should be fighting for.
0: There was a there was a a, a very nice movement um, of young people called the the Occupy movement. Oh, Occupy,
1: um, yeah, Occupy which
0: frankly I got to tell you, uh, as some as a as someone who is slightly older than millennials. Um, it was lovely to see um, young kids finally starting to talk about some of the things that I had been boring people to death with for you know for thirty years and finally starting to talk about income equality and in a lot of ways, they were extremely successful in at least putting that language into the the American lexicon and and getting people to at least take a look at it now it seems to have fallen off from there and i don't know where things stand currently um it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of movement to try and you know to to start talking about how to how to bring that together other than uh some you know some talk from bernie sanders and some of his some of his supporters um who talking about taxing the rich which is never never really going to go over all that well um what do you think? I mean, how do we how do we, how do we how do we mend the gap between the haves and the haves not?
1: Well, you know, first of all, I want to go back to your um, what you were saying about Occupy. I think Occupy, and I agree with you. I think Occupy was remarkably successful. Not oh, absolutely! Successful in you know overthrowing Wall Street or something like that, uh, but that was preposterous. What they were successful in is they changed the narrative in this country. And so people wouldn't have cared about Mitt Romney's taxes if it hadn't been for Occupy. People wouldn't be talking about this very vibrant metaphor, the 1% and the 99% if it hadn't been for Occupy. So I think we have to give them a lot of credit for having an imaginative approach to creating a social movement. And this thing is still resonating out into the world. It's resonating out into the world in things like occupy the mental health clinics in Chicago, occupy the classrooms, um, all over the place. And so, as a metaphor, it's it's done some really great service. The other thing to remember is that Black Lives Matter comes in the context of that as well. So does undocumented and unafraid. So does standing up. Mm-hmm. I mean, in other words, we can't look at these things as linear isolated events we have to see that there is a lot of activity on the ground a lot of activity of resistance and it feeds off of it it feeds off of each other so i'm very excited about what i, I don't think bernie sanders campaign would have happened either without occupy so i think these things you know are synergistic and they are dynamic and they matter but what's going to lead to um Fixing the income inequality, that's anybody's guess. I have no way of predicting. What I do think is there's more consciousness about it today than there's ever been. And while I can't count on the New York Times or NPR or any establishment media picking it up and running with it at this moment, I do think that people are talking in Illinois, in Michigan, in Florida, in Wisconsin. People are massively talking about the fact that these states have been being run as a as a business for years and years, and look what they've wrought. So, running Michigan as a business brings us Flint and the water crisis. Wisconsin being run as a business means stripping that brilliant University of Wisconsin. Um, of of some of its its most powerful resources. So I think people are yeah, don't
0: forget about Kansas too.
1: Yeah, you can go on and on. I mean, and I think that while the right wing has been enormously effective and while there's a massive base for kind of right wing thinking in this country, I also think that there's a base of opposition that's even vaster and in the long run much more hopeful and much more possible. So I don't know I don't know the answer to how we fix income inequality except to say that we organize around the fact in Illinois, for example, that we're not going to fix the schools with, with simply um, cutting taxes and cutting services. We're going to fix the schools by getting our priorities straight and recognizing that education is an important aspect of doing away with street violence, that education and jobs are a huge aspect of Black Lives Matter, and also recognizing that we need revenue. To fix these problems, it's not just a matter of cutting, cutting, cutting until the government disappears. It's a matter of gathering the revenue and deciding how we, want to, how we want to use it. I mean, you know, in the book, I talk about the fact that every government in the history of the world has only done taxing and spending. That's what governments do. The debate we need to have in this country is tax whom, how much, and spend on what. And in that debate, argue for spending on Healthcare, care, education, and guarantees of income. And I'll vote against spending on incarceration, surveillance, and war.
0: Which is where at least, what, at least 50% of your tax dollar goes to, right? So, um, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's, in order to get any of that accomplished, however, you do need decent politicians in, correct? I mean, you're going to have to put pressure on on those who wield power. Um, and you're going to have to install people who wield power who actually represent, uh, you know, progressive ideals now, which is, which is, which was part of the reason behind the whole Bernie Sanders campaign and, and, and to a lesser extent, some, some other, um, house candidates as well. Um, so, I mean, we do have to work within this framework, correct?
1: Well, Keith, but, but there's two things. I agree with you. Of course it's true but let's not put the cart before the horse. And I'll go back to my historical examples. Lyndon Johnson was not part of the Black Freedom Movement. He passed the most far-reaching civil rights legislation in history, but not because it bounced out of his own brain with nothing happening around him. It came because of the massive fire from below represented by the Civil Rights Movement, Mm -hmm. which was that generation's iteration of the Black Freedom Movement and with that fire from below, Johnson was pushed and in some ways forced to do the right thing against his history, against his instincts. Franklin Roosevelt was not part of the labor movement, but there was a labor movement that pushed and pushed, and it didn't start by pushing Franklin Roosevelt to be a better guy. It started by building a massive movement from below in industry, and that then became the power. So. I'm saying you you know you want to be careful about putting the heart, heart before the horse, because it's not that electoral politics leads the movement. It is essential that politicians um, be, participate. But I think of it as walking toward progress on two legs. One leg is the constant massive mobilization of people demanding something better, and that's about educating and organizing and mobilizing. And two is politicians who do the right thing when the right thing is required of them. You know, Barack Obama, interestingly, when he ran for president in 2008, said out loud, if you want peace, build a peace movement. If you want universal health care, build a health care movement. And that was absolutely the language of of a community organizer. He understood how the two things work together.
0: I think that's a good place to leave it there. Now, there's a kid out there somewhere. He's got progressive leanings. He's living in maybe Wisconsin. He's living in uh, Kansas or something. Uh, He's in the middle of a a deeply red state and a deeply red town, and he is not too happy about it and doesn't really know what to do. Do you have any advice for a kid like that? There's a ton of them out there.
1: My, my, My thought is that in a world as out of balance as this world, everyone can find some issue to dive into. And when you dive into an issue, Your responsibility is to reframe it, to not allow yourself to be caught up in the frames that are given to us, the frames that are offered to us, but rather to find a way to reframe it in a larger, you know, moral and political universe. And once we do that, once we reframe issues, once we rethink where we are, we need to connect issues. We need to connect global warming, for example, with war. And I think, you know, that everyone can find some way to get engaged. The world is not static, it's not standing still. So there's all kinds of movements on the ground that one can find a way into. Movement to support uh, women's right to reproductive health, movement to uh, support um, you know, an end to mass incarceration, a movement to support a peace um, alternative to the kind of permanent war that we seem to be caught in. So my advice is to dive into the world. My students often would say to me, you seem to think that we should do everything. And my response is always, not everything, anything. Dive into anything and then find allies and begin organizing. You know, I'm often called an activist, and I guess I've been an activist most of my life. But I think I don't fully embrace the term. And the reason is because activism foregrounds the, the, the kind of demonstration, the kind of performative part of what I do. But I think much more important is organizing learning how to talk to strangers, learning how to talk to people you disagree with. This whole discussion about how to have Thanksgiving dinner if you have Clinton supporters and Trump supporters at the table struck me as a little bit silly because if you can't talk to Uncle Mort, even though you disagree with him, then shame on you. You have to find a language where you can actually argue in a way that's not mean-spirited, but in which you try to tell the truth and try to understand the perspective of the other person this is basic community organizing and i think everyone no matter where they are can find a way into that world
0: so what's next for you bill we got any projects working
1: well i mean i have you know i have projects and projects the next the next explicit thing for me is i'm i'm going to go to uh, washington dc i was planning to go on january 19th to um, Be part of a peace uh, assembly um, to push President Clinton um, for a more peaceful foreign policy. Sadly, that's not going to happen. I'll be there, but I'll be pushing President elect Trump um, against nuclear war, against um, military bases all over the world, and against this notion of permanent war, uh, us against the world. I think that's so. I'll be in Washington January 19th. I'll stay for the inauguration. I'm trying to get tickets through my senator, but I doubt that they'll come through. Uh, If I don't, I'll be around the 21st for the Women's March. So that's the next, uh, you know, outside thing that I'm doing. But I continue to do what I've always done, which is try to organize around issues of peace and justice here in Chicago. And that includes against mass incarceration, for decent schools, against the militarization of police, for the opening of mental health clinics and so on.
0: Bill Ayers. Author of the new book "Demand the Impossible: A Radical Manifesto," published by Haymarket, I believe, right? Haymarket Books—a seriously fine imprint. You'll find it. if you haven't looked up Haymarket Books, please do so. There's fantastic stuff, uh, and do pick up "Demand the Impossible: A Radical Manifesto" by Bill Harris. Bill, thank you so much for being my first guest. I just can't—I can't thank you enough.
1: Thank you very much. Enjoy talking to you. Do well.
0: And that's it. That's my interview with Bill Ayers, the first guest on the We Are Here podcast. Uh, Again, huge thanks to him. He's been a wonderful guy over uh, the course of actually about two months now as we're trying to get this together. Um, Do go out and buy his book. It really is. It is worth the money and it's worth the time invested. Also, huge thanks to Brent Harris for putting together the kick-ass logo for this show. Um, Check out a lot of his incredibly weird stuff on Instagram at Harris Built. That's Harris Built on Instagram. And also uh, Negative Land, who have let us kindly let us use Christianity is Stupid as the theme song for the show. Uh, hopefully we will talk to Negative Land uh, for an upcoming show. Uh, that's going to do it. We are at the end. Thank you so much for listening. Um, we hope to make this a weekly thing. Uh, so please do check back next week and we'll ha- have an incredible incredibly interesting guest and uh, me stumbling hopefully slightly less than this time Uh, you can check us out at facebook facebook.com slash we are here podcast you can also uh, send me an email we are here pod at gmail.com thanks a lot Communism communism is good communism is good communism is good
1: give up you hear that? give up give up shop as usual and avoid panic buying